evening and uh, welcome. My name is Simon Levin. I'm the chairman of the University Lectures Committee, uh, which is sponsoring this series of three lectures. And uh, I assume all of you know that there are three lectures, but I will uh, call your attention to them anyway. There also are a few uh, posters available describing this series and also describing the rest of the university lectures for the year. These are all in the evenings, free, open to the public. We uh, welcome everyone. I also want to acknowledge, before I go any further, the work of uh, Amy Bordvik on this, who's sitting in the front uh, row. She has been really administering the university uh, lecture series and has done just a, a terrific job. So I, I, I ask you all to join me in thanking her. <laughs> Amy's brought a few posters with her. Uh, that are sitting outside, but we've, uh, I think, are running out. So if anybody would like to, to, uh, to get one and they're, they're not available, please let her know or let me know. Um, this is also being broadcast over the web live, which I think is a first time for, for the university lecture series, and we hope it won't be the last time. This allows people all over the world to be uh, following us as this is going on. This is the second in an exciting series on cloning. Those of you who were fortunate enough to be here last night heard John Gordon of Mount Sinai Medical Center talk about scientific and ethical aspects of cloning in animals and humans. Uh, John talked about the scientific fundamentals and uh, set things in a context in terms of what some of the moral and ethical issues are in addition to some of the financial issues that we need to confront uh, in, in dealing with issues, especially of human cloning. Tomorrow night, as in the summation of this series, will be a panel discussion chaired by President Shapiro and involving uh, John Gordon, Ann McLaren, John Robertson, Lee Silver, and Bonnie Steinbach. So I invite you to come back tomorrow night, but the, tomorrow night's lecture will not be here. It will be in Makash 50. So uh, those of you who are interested, please uh, join us. Today, we are very fortunate to have Laurie Andrews, who is a professor of law uh, at the Chicago Kent College of Law, who's going to talk to us about mom, dad, clone, why we should not create children through cloning. Uh, this is, I'm sure, closely related to a paper which she wrote recently called Mom, Dad, Clone Implications for Reproductive Privacy. Lori Andrews is the director of the Illinois Institute of Technology's Institute for Science, Law, and Technology. She is a senior scholar at the University of Chicago's Center for Clinical Medical Ethics. She is the author or editor of six books and three monographs, many papers, including the book some years ago, not that many years ago, Between Strangers, Surrogate Mothers, Expectant Fathers, and Brave New Babies. She's also written a paper recently for the commission, an invitation for the commission that President Shapiro chaired, a paper called The Current and Future Legal Status 
of cloning, which appeared in a volume uh, that, that the National Bioethics Advisory Committee uh, put out, as well as the paper that I mentioned before, Mom, Dad, Clone, which deals with a variety of ethical, moral, and legal issues, such as the issue of the power of one person over another, the comparisons to incest, etc. These issues, and I'm not going to take your whole lecture away from you, uh, uh, are, are obviously very stimulating issues. Uh, we have a very stimulating speaker. I'm sure it's going to be a fascinating evening, so I'm delighted to welcome Laurie Andrews. Thank you very much. I'm pleased and very honored to be part of this quite interesting and significant symposium about human cloning. And as was just mentioned, a few days after uh, the birth of Dolly the Sheep was announced, I received a call from President Clinton's newly formed National Bioethics Advisory Commission calling for a legal opinion about cloning. Now, I rapidly began to think of this as the Bill Gates problem. What if a wealthy individual like Bill Gates wanted to clone himself, perhaps making Bill Gates 5.0, 5.1, 6.0? Could any existing law actually stop him? Now, to find out you know, what it would entail, I called a friend who's an embryologist at the Oregon Primate Center, Don Wolf, who had uh, recently cloned rhesus monkeys from embryonic cells, not from adult somatic cells, as had been done with Dolly. In addition to his research with chimps, Don Wolf works uh, with human IVF patients. So I asked him what it would take uh, to uh, financially to clone a human being. And he said about a million dollars. And so as I reviewed existing laws, I found that there was actually very little to stop uh, a wealthy individual from cloning himself, certainly not the million dollars. I learned that Bill Gates had spent that much money on his wedding on the 18th hole of a Hawaiian golf course with singer Willie Nelson there. So if he had wanted to go ahead, he certainly could afford it. There were nine states that banned experimentation on embryos, and I looked at them to see if they'd restrict what humans could do with cloning. Uh, but since they concentrated on what you did with embryos, they wouldn't apply here. The research that was being done in human cloning involved taking uh, the nucleus from a somatic cell and putting it into an egg in which the nucleus had been removed. And so that was experimentation on an egg, not an embryo. Once, by the time the embryo was formed, nothing experimental was done with it. It was put back into, it could be put back into a woman's body just as in standard IVF procedures. Now, I also looked around, I'd, I'd spent a lot of time writing about the in vitro fertilization uh, industry in the United States, and there were about 300, legal, uh, 300 medical clinics uh, involved with in vitro, and it was estimated that approximately half of them had the personnel and probably the technology in order to undertake human cloning. Uh, many of them offer a procedure known as intracytoplasmic sperm injection, or ICSI, in which an embryologist uses a microscopic pipette to inject a single sperm into a woman's eggs. Uh, clinics use ICSI to treat male infertility when men don't produce uh, a sufficient number of sperm. 
But clinics could adapt this ICSI procedure in order to clone humans by injecting nucleic DNA from an adult cell into an egg from which the nucleus had been removed, the method that had been used to create DALI and more recently the cloned mice. President Clinton had come out uh, with a ban on federal funds uh, for human cloning, but that ban will have little effect in private fertility clinics. For the past 20 years, the federal government has refused to provide funds for research on in vitro fertilization, but that hasn't stopped the hundreds of privately financed IVF clinics from creating tens of thousands of babies. Now, the president's ban won't stop scientists who wish to undertake cloning with private funds. Uh, along those lines, I don't know if you followed it, but a Swedish religious cult, the Raelians, have offered such scientists private funds and laboratory space to begin their work. The Raelians believe, though, that only smart people should be cloned. So I guess we'll have a, uh, a large number of uh, the Princeton uh, component in, in this brave new world. And, and I got interested enough that recently, this past summer, I flew up to Canada to interview Rael, the head of the Raelian movement. And he told me how they'd set up a company in the Bahamas called CloneAid, where for $200,000, you can be cloned. He also has another service, InsuraClone, where for $50,000, you can store cells from your child in case they die in order to create a clone if you lose them to disease or accident. Another service, which he is hoping to start soon, is called Clone a Pet, aimed at affluent individuals who wish to see their dead pet brought back to life. Now, the market for that might be even more lucrative than cloning children. I don't know if you follow the fact that a rich couple recently gave $2.3 million to Texas A&M uh, University to clone uh, their dog, Missy. And for those who are following this on the web, maybe even more interesting than listening to me tonight, you should click on the website for this Missyplicity project, as it's called, where you can find, uh, you know, why Missy is such a great pet and see pictures of her, but also see their, their code of ethics for cloning Missy, in which they say that none of this technology will uh, be used to clone humans, even though, you know, how can you contain it if they much improve the technology for cloning? You know, surely someone will be tempted to try it in humans. Now, in most states, fertility clinics are observing a voluntary moratorium on human cloning because they uh, expect that the success will be low and because research on animals suggests the possibility of physical risk in any offspring. Uh, now, after all, um, of the 277 attempts to create DALI, only one was successful. Uh, the Hawaiian researchers uh, who created three generations of cloned mice were unsuccessful in getting any male clones. Uh, for a while, I thought that uh, was interesting. You know, women have made such great strides in science in that, you know, we've got DALI and the cloned mice, you know, all females. But then, of course, there was that recent announcement by the Virginia Clinic of uh, a new sex selection technique, and obviously in that area, um, more men are being created than, uh, than women. Now, most people also see it as prohibitively expensive to undertake human uh, cloning. If we were at that success rate of 1 in 277, you obviously would have to get 277 human eggs, which have a cost of around $2,000 each, in order to uh, have one successful, um, uh, one successful clone. So that would be about a little over half a million dollars. Uh, I don't know if you've also followed that. Apparently, the eggs of Princeton women 
are worth much more than the going rate. Now, there, there is a couple that is advertising anonymously, uh, offering $35,000 uh, for the eggs of a Princeton woman. But, of course, they want it with the uh, nucleic material in it. They want to create a bright child as opposed to the donor eggs used in cloning where the nucleic material is removed. As, as I explored uh, these issues further and talked, in fact, to some members of the National Bioethics Advisory Commission, uh, some of them were surprised at how few legal protections there were in place when radically new medical technologies were tried. Uh, NBAC member David Cox, a Stanford geneticist, said to me, I have to comply with a dozen federal regulations before I even sneeze at a mouse. But I was shocked at how few laws protect people in human experimentation. The acting director of the Food and Drug Administration believes that his agency has the power to regulate human cloning. But if that were true, why haven't they regulated in vitro fertilization or any of its variants? Like cloning, some IVF techniques, including the ICSI technique I mentioned, have both a low success rate and potential genetic risk to children, our very objections to cloning. And even if the Food and Drug Administration were able to assert its authority, um, it only has the power to assess safety and efficacy. It has no right or expertise to decide whether cloning should be banned altogether. Nor were there any clear laws to prevent Bill Gates from being cloned against his will. What if Gates' barber used DNA from a hair follicle to create a Gates clone and then sued Gates for child support? Under current law, this is why people go into law, <laughs> their felonious nature or something. Under current law, people have no legal right to their body tissue and genes once these materials leave their body in some states. For example, in Moorer versus the Regents of the University of California, a genetics case in which I've been involved, a patient's doctor, without his knowledge or consent, used the patient's unique tissue to develop a cell line that was worth an estimated $3 billion. The court found that the patient had no right to share in the proceeds, uh, and so there was no right of this particular patient to have a property interest in his cell lines once they the cells left as bodies, which doesn't give us much uh, protection against what some have talked about as a snip-and-run industry. If you're a celebrity, someone might try to get a piece of your skin, a piece of your hair to clone a child. It might seem um, very uh, far-fetched, uh, but Nobel laureate Carrie Mullis, who won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1993, is marketing jewelry with celebrity DNA in it. And so you can, you know, buy, uh, you know, a watch with Abraham Lincoln's DNA, and he's trying to get Mick Jagger's DNA for some other uh, jewelry, which he calls gene stones instead of gemstones. And so, if if you if you want, you know, jewelry with a snippet of celebrity DNA, how much better to have uh, a you know human replica? Um, and along those lines. I don't know if you saw the, the Nightline with Richard Seed talking to Ted Koppel after he announced he was going to clone humans. One of, in, in a particularly mad scientist tone, he, he said that he was going to just walk by uh, Ted Koppel and, you know, with a little syringe and get a piece of, of him to clone, um, to which Ted Koppel replied, well, that'll be an interesting lawsuit. Um, so this whole issue of uh, who has control then over who, who gets cloned is, is an open question. And even if Bill Gates intended to clone himself, to hold power in his company or create a worthy heir, 
he might not be recognized by law as the legal parent. In some state, the legal parents would be Gates' parents and the replica would be his twin brother. You know, if you did standard paternity testing, they wouldn't find Gates to be the parent but the father. In two other states, North Dakota and Utah, if the twins were gestated by a surrogate mother, the child would be considered the legal offspring of the surrogate and her husband. Even though she had no genetic connection, Gates would be a legal stranger to the child. And what would Gates' clone be like? Some geneticists claim that virtually all traits are inherited. Along those lines, psychiatrist David Reese of George Washington University declared, the Cold War is over in the nature-nurture debate, i.e. it's all genetics. But though identical twins reared apart show many similarities, they also have some differences. A cloned twin raised in a later historical period will be uh, even more different. And sometimes the general public loses sight of this. There's this wonderful call-in talk show in New York where they talked about cloning a mummy from the, um, the, the museum. And uh, one of the callers said, well, that would be terrible to do to this person because there they'd be dressed in this Egyptian garb, not speaking the language, walking down the street in New York, you know, not even considering that, you know, they'd, they'd grow up talking like someone from Brooklyn, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, this, this, uh, this era of, you know, potential difference, it would be very strong. Well, should cloning be allowed? I think that's uh, the key issue that, in part, this symposium is addressing. We have drawn the line on some medical developments. Even though it's possible to transplant eggs from aborted fetuses into infertile adult women, we have chosen not to do so because of the potential psychological impact on the resulting child who might learn that the mother died, indeed never lived, before she was conceived. But we do allow practices that to some seem as suspect as cloning. One of the scientific uses proposed uh, for cloning humans is to create a packet of spare parts. That way, if an individual runs himself down with an unhealthy lifestyle, he can get kidney or blood donation from his clone. While that violates the notion of the human worth of the clone, already some couples, uh, such as parents of a child who has leukemia, have created a second child to serve as a bone marrow donor. Uh, they have done so using genetic tests uh, while the second child is in the womb to see if she will be an appropriate match. Uh, the couple aborts any fetuses that do not match until they create an appropriate donor. When Jonathan Slack cloned headless tadpoles, it was suggested that headless human clones be grown for spare parts. And uh, we can ask Lee Silver tomorrow night uh, uh, his opinion on that. He's quoted in the newspaper as saying there's no rational reason to be against it. Now, is there any rational reason uh, to be against cloning at this time? Well, one reason is the potential physical risk to cloning. Um, turning on slumbering genes may activate uh, hidden mutations. For example, if we use my skin cell, uh, I might have a mutation in the genes associated with my brain that I never realized when it was just operating as a, as a skin cell. And the history of animal cloning from embryonic and fetal cells suggests caution before cloning humans. Cloned frogs have had gross deformities. Some cloned sheep have died in the first year of life. Uh, more recently, when the Granada Corporation in Texas began cloning cows from differentiated embryonic cells, some of the cloned calves were abnormally large, had diabetes and large hearts. 18 to 20 percent of the calves certainly uh, simply died after birth. 
Now, the scientific team that cloned Dolly has also met with unsatisfactory results. After cloning Dolly, they used fetal cells to create cloned transgenic animals. Uh, of these, uh, only uh, uh, many uh, died uh, shortly after birth, and uh, some, again, weighed twice the average for the, uh, that type of, of sheep. Ian Wilmot, Dolly's creator, responded to the announcement uh, that Richard Seed intended to clone humans in the next two years by saying, let me remind you that one quarter of the lambs born in our experiment died within days of birth. Seed is suggesting that the number of uh, humans would be born, but others would die because they didn't develop properly. That's totally irresponsible. I think the more intriguing question, though, is if the safety issues were worked out to a certain degree, would we still have some opposition to cloning? And I think there's much more debate in that area. Uh, I think that even if cloning posed no physical risks, we should think about the potential emotional risk as well. If a cloned person's genetic progenitor is a famous musician or athlete, parents may exert an improper amount of coercion to get the child to develop those talents. True, the same thing may happen to a lesser degree now, but the cloning scenario seems more problematic to me. I might force my naturally conceived child to practice you know, guitar for hours on ends, but I'll probably eventually give up if he seems uninterested or tone deaf. I might make more fervent attempts to develop the child's musical ability if I have chosen or even paid for the nucleic material from Eric Clapton. And pity the child who's the Michael Jordan clone. Uh, if he breaks his kneecap at age 10, will he consider himself a failure? Uh, what will his parents think? What would that mean for the Phil Jackson clone? And what if the original Michael Jordan died next year of an inheritable cancer? His young clones would become uninsurable because of their genetic makeup. Now, even though parents have a constitutional right to make child-rearing decisions, Parents don't have a right to receive all genetic information about their children that isn't of immediate benefit. So we already limit in some instances, if you look at guidelines of the American Society of Human Genetics and so forth, the type of genetic foreknowledge parents can have about children. Uh, this uh, limitation has come about uh, in part because of instances such as um, one in which a mother entered a Huntington's disease testing facility. Huntington's disease, as you know, is a debilitating neurological defect that manifests at around age 50. You die younger. A mother went in with her two young uh, sons and said she wanted them both tested for the Huntington's disease gene because, she said, I only have enough money to send one to Harvard. That request and similar requests to test young girls for the breast cancer gene raised concerns about uh, parents' genetic knowledge of their children and whether it would cause them to underinvest emotionally and financially in the children that they felt would uh, go on to develop a certain disease. Now, in contrast to some of the concerns I've been raising, some people suggest that cloning might actually be psychologically beneficial. A bioethicist Gregory Pence sees cloning as a way to strengthen the father's relationship with the child. And to quote him, he says, fathers often have had little relation to small children. In our new scenario, cloning, he says, having a child who looked like you and had your genes would not be, a, be so easy to walk away from. So a genetic connection between the father and the son would likely produce a strong 
uh, a, a stronger than normal social bond. So, so fathers would pay more attention to boys who looked and were a clone of themselves. Now, two questions immediately came to mind when I read this. First was, aren't there better ways to establish a connection between men and their sons? Ways, in fact, that would have additional social benefits, like fostering more paternity leaves for men? And what happens to the relationship between men and their daughters? Uh, fathers have traditionally underinvested in the welfare of their daughters by not providing as much support for daughters' education, for example. Enhancing the bond between fathers and their clones uh, might lead to even fewer resources going to young women. Gregory Pence also asked, would it be so terrible to all parents to at least aim for a certain type in the same way that great breeders try to match a breed of dog to the needs of a family? Now, the risk here I see is uh, hubris, uh, abuse of power potentially uh, in making these uh, decisions. And based on the kinds of concerns I'm raising, uh, three states, California, Michigan, and Rhode Island, have adopted laws banning human cloning. Uh, that is, creating a child, creating an offspring through cloning. Uh, the laws have not tried to impede any sort of cloning research in genetics, cloning organs, any of those sorts of things. But interestingly, these laws may be outpaced by the technology itself. For example, in California, you're, you're prohibited from putting uh, the DNA of, say, an existing individual into a human egg to create a clone. But embryologist Neil First at the University of Wisconsin recently suggested that cow eggs could serve as a universal incubator for clones of other mammals. So expensive human eggs may no longer be necessary. Neil First, in fact, uh, got his cow eggs from the slaughterhouse. So you could, you could get around the California law by um, going ahead and, uh, and using cow eggs. In addition, uh, the laws don't do not apply to embryo splitting, which might be another way to achieve uh, some of the same purposes as cloning. In fact, uh, I first met Richard Seed uh, in 1980 at the First World Congress on In Vitro Fertilization in Germany. And at that time, he got up and in his talk, he suggested um, splitting an embryo in half, freezing half and implanting it, and he said, growing it up, see if it got into Harvard, and then you would defrost the other half if it was worthwhile. Now, the Harvard reference is undoubtedly offensive to people here in Princeton, as it was to a Yale person like me. Uh, but the idea is that if the laws don't cover embryo splitting, some of the same concern about a ladder-born twin would come up in this situation. Now, might laws banning human cloning also be unconstitutional? Do scientists, for example, have a constitutional right of inquiry that could serve as a basis of a challenge to such a restriction? And now there's no doubt that scientific inquiry has and always will be an enduring American value. The framers of the Constitution spoke about the sacred nature of scientific inquiry. We've put into place a patent system. And in fact, um, Senator Tom Harkin defended cloning research by explicitly stating that scientists have the right to research and that there are not any appropriate limits to human knowledge. In fact, he said to my friends Senator Bond and President Clinton, who are saying, stop, we can't play God, I say, fine, take your ranks alongside Pope Paul V, who tried to stop Galileo. So there is this, in our political discussion, this uh, 
this privileging of, of scientific inquiry. But if you look at the actual legal cases on it, um, there, there's a suggestion that scientists do have a right to do research and advance the scientific knowledge of the community. But um, if you look at the type of research they're talking about, uh, they, it mainly is, is access to existing information. For example, in a famous scientific inquiry uh, court case, um, it, was, it was opined that the obscenity laws could not be applied to prohibit the Kinsey Institute from studying obscene material. For example, you, could, you can't cut off access to existing knowledge. However, courts have held there's no fundamental right to undertake just any kind of experiments that you want, and in fact have specifically said that there's not a scientific right of inquiry to do embryo research. So that could not be used as a uh, way to declare unconstitutional the laws that ban human cloning. But what about the even uh, stronger right that couples have to reproductive freedom? California, I mentioned, is one of the states with a ban on human cloning, and now an infertile man in California wants to bring a lawsuit on the grounds of reproductive freedom to challenge this. Um, ironically, the arguments he'll be making are based on successful cases I handled in my own career, challenging laws that, uh, that restricted access to new reproductive technologies such as embryo donation, embryo freezing, and preimplantation screening. In fact, the cases are, uh, in this area are interesting. I mean, shortly after the birth of Louise Brown, the first in vitro fertilization child, Illinois lawmakers uh, passed a law to deter doctors from doing IVF. The law said that any physician that fer who fertilized a, a human egg in vitro had custody of the resulting embryo for purposes of an 1877 child abuse law. Now, doctors in Illinois were clearly afraid then to do in vitro. They had no idea what the law might mean. I mean, with an existing child, you knew what sort of clothing, shelter, medical care. But what did it mean in terms of an eight-cell embryo? Could a prosecutor indict a doctor every time an embryo failed to develop into a child on the grounds that the doctor should have fed it a more nutritious petri dish mixture? Uh, would the doctor be guilty of homicide if he or she discarded an embryo that wasn't dividing properly? And another landmine in this Illinois law was that it uh, gave custody to the doctors, but it never gave it back to the parents. So if the law had been in effect in England when Louise Brown was born, uh, Leslie and John Brown wouldn't have had a legal claim to their daughter. She would have belonged to Robert Edwards and Patrick Steptoe, the, the researchers who uh, were responsible. Now, in that, uh, we challenged that on reproductive freedom grounds, and the Illinois legislature uh, changed the law and adopted a law that banned embryo research except for in vitro fertilization. So once again, we are back in court because, again, arguing uh, reproductive freedom because couples wanted access to other technologies, embryo cryopreservation and so forth. Um, we didn't want to totally disrupt the, the embryo research prohibitions and see human embryos lined up in rows with researchers testing drugs or cosmetics on them, but the Illinois ban was just too broad, preventing women from using legitimate fertility procedures and genetic testing. Uh, the judge agreed with us and said that it took no great leap of logic uh, to see that the federal constitution protects not only contraceptive and abortion choices, but the right to submit to a medical procedure that may bring about rather than prevent pregnancy. So will this 
apply to cloning as well, this reproductive freedom. I think that, um, let's just say, not in this Supreme Court's time, as just a practical legal opinion, but as a more nuanced legal opinion, I think that there are differences between even the variations in IVF that uh, we had argued for in these cases and human cloning. In even the most high-tech reproductive technologies currently available, a mix of genes occurs to create an individual with a genotype that has never existed before on Earth. In the case of twins, two such individuals are created. Their futures are open, and the distinction between themselves and their parents is acknowledged. In the case of cloning, the genotype has already existed. And even though it's perfectly clear that this uh, later-born clone will develop into a different person, uh, because of different social, environmental, and generational influences, there's evidence of the fact that he or she has a genotype that has already existed will affect how the resulting clone is treated by himself, his family, and social institutions. If you look at what's going on in our society now in terms of the decisions that are made based on knowledge of people's genotype. In that sense, cloning is uh, distinct from traditional reproduction or alternative reproduction. Um, you can also see it in even the, the law review articles on cloning, which ask questions like, will the clone be the property of the individual? Or George Annis has pointed out how uh, cloning is a challenge to human dignity uh, because it potentially devalues human life. Even comparing the original to a copy uh, gives, gives a sense of which is more, uh, more valued. And in testimony that was given before the, the National Bioethics Advisory Commission, several speakers pointed out how important it is that uh, children have a genetic independence from their parents. One said they replicate neither their mother nor father. This is a reminder of the independence that we must eventually grant them and for which it is our duty to prepare them. Now, I've been at recent scientific meetings where researchers have told me that reproductive freedom has no limits and can never uh, be stopped when harms are speculative. Um, but there are obviously uh, limits to reproductive choice, including laws against incest. Um, and reproductive freedom is threatened as much by a ban on incest as by a ban on cloning. The harms are equal, equally speculative. Uh, incest does create potential physical risks to the offspring due to the potential for lethal recessive disorders to occur. Incest also creates potential psychological risks to the offspring, knowing that the parents are close biological relatives. But no one seriously thinks that those physical risks uh, and so forth are the reasons that we ban incest. A father and daughter could avoid that risk by using contraceptives or agreeing to have prenatal diagnosis and abort-affected fetuses. There might even be instances where based on their personalities, uh, there is no psychological harm to either party. Yet we ban incest, despite the speculative nature of the harm, because it allows an exercise of excessive power of parents over children. And I think that this uh, is what I'm fearful of in, with respect to human cloning. There also seems to be a world of difference between reproductive technologies such as in vitro, embryo donation, surrogate motherhood, that allow couples to make up for a missing ingredient in the reproductive process. And the technologies now being proposed, not just human cloning, but uh, 
allowing dead men to reproduce children by collecting sperm after their death or uh, reanimating dead fetuses. I don't know if you've read about cryogenic solutions, this Houston company that actually um, uh, offers a service to women who abort to freeze the fetus so that when the technology comes along for the fetus to be reanimated, they could leave open this choice of um, having, having that same child. Um, and so these various things are uh, not a meeting existing needs. They're creating new needs and trying to shoehorn them into the existing category of women's reproductive choices. Um, cloning to me, though, hardly seemed to be an enhancement of women's freedom. When it came to suggestions about who we should clone, it was men who made the list, Michael Jordan, Albert Einstein, Bill Gates. And at a meeting I, I uh, attended last April in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, Muslim religious uh, leaders uh, and Middle Eastern uh, in vitro doctors came to an accord that Islamic uh, law and values would allow them to clone men, <laughs> infertile married men, as long as it was used within this marriage relationship. What was then at that meeting that I realized that somatic cell nuclear transfer, as the DALI technique was called, was not so much a scientific technique to reproduce individuals, but as a way to clone our values. The realians who I talked to wanted to clone smart people because that was what they valued. The Muslims would clone men. And so perhaps the main objection I had to cloning was that it replicated everything that was troubling to me about reproductive technology so far. Excessive commercialization, reckless experimentation on women, procedures undertaken without consent, unmonitored physical and psychological risks. So from my point of view, it was time to reverse the process, and cloning seemed to be the perfect opportunity to shift the burden of proof, to ask scientists to give a good reason rather than some uh, false promise before they started the technique to show why it was really necessary and to design a system from the start to protect the participants. Now, in the past, I had argued against bans on in vitro fertilization and paid surrogate motherhood. Now I was arguing for a ban on human cloning. Is it any wonder that Princeton professor Lee Silver sent me a fax, and uh, may I paraphrase this, Lee, saying, you used to be so smart, Lori. I can't understand why you would take a position on cloning, uh, gets cloning. Um, but it's really my 20-year familiarity with uh, the technologies among reproductive technologies that has caused me to be at this place at this time. Uh, arguing in these cases, I'd help researchers and doctors gain really unassailable authority by the challenging the constitutionality of laws that constrain the reproductive and genetics field. And I've given credibility to a kind of cultural mindset that says I have a right to a child by any means possible. What's happened is that um, because of this freedom from regulation, infertility services have been transformed from a small medical specialty to a $4 billion annual industry. And because of enduring pro-life sentiment, there are no federal funds still available for embryo research. Only 10 states have laws requiring insurers to pay for in vitro. And that means there's this fierce competition for wealthy uh, patients. And there's a lot of areas in which I think there's uh, consumer abuses. Some clinics report as pregnancies, small hormonal shifts in a woman's body, which show that an embryo has briefly implanted and then been reabsorbed by her body. Others implant as many as 10 embryos or use infertility drugs indiscriminately to increase the number of babies the clinic created, even though this increases the risk to women and their fetuses. 
And so everywhere I look, I'm seeing, um, like I wrote a recent, uh, part of a group that wrote a recent article in the journal Science about it, uh, advocating that we make art, assisted reproductive technologies, turn art into a science to have more, uh, more concern about uh, advanced review of the protocols, follow-up data. Uh, in fact, um, uh, a professor of OBGYN, uh, Brooks Keel, has says a woman gets more oversight, regulatory oversight when she gets a tattoo than when she gets IVF. Um, my phone actually rings daily with calls from journalists and judges and government agencies wanting uh, opinions about the latest technologies. GIF, ZIFT, ICSI, the number of acronyms grows. The Japanese have tried this, the South Koreans that. I feel like the world is locked in this battle over who could push the boundaries the furthest. And as I look at my phone messages, I think of the prank calls teenagers often make. Uh, some days my phone messages look equally whimsical, human sperm and mice, male pregnancy. One temporary receptionist actually threw out half my phone messages because she thought they were a joke. Um, but in the course of my 20 years of work in this area, I've learned several truisms. If it has worked in just one animal, it will be tried in a woman. If a baby's born from the technique, her picture will go up on the clinic wall, but no one will look at how she fears as she develops, nor how, nor how her mother does over time. Um, and so I have no confidence that the safety of cloning will be adequately studied before it is applied to humans. In vitro fertilization was applied to women years before it was applied to baboons, chimpanzees, or rhesus monkeys, leading Don Wolf, the embryologist, to opine that it seemed that women had served as the model for non-human primates. Um, we're having some of the same issues coming up around other infertility uh, procedures. Uh, for, for example, in 1997, there were 1.3 million prescriptions written for fertility drugs. That's a, costing $230 million, uh, yet overstimulation of the ovaries by fertility drugs can cause swelling and bleeding, in some cases heart failure. There are obviously risks to uh, offsprings. Uh, while only 8% of singletons are premature, the percentage rises to 53% for twins and 92% for triplets. Uh, multiples have uh, long-term, often suffer from long-term medical problems, yet no registry tracks the children of IVF and fertility drugs to measure any problems in the United States. Uh, the full magnitude of the risks are unknown, and s some clinics um, are willing to offer fertility drugs to women who are merely impatient, not infertile. They've tried two, three months to get pregnant and, and uh, maybe even have had other children. Uh, some IVF clinics put back seven to ten embryos, uh, heedless of the, the risk. And when I analyzed informed consent forms from in, uh, infertility clinics, I found that many clinics use consent forms that list totally remote possibilities. What would happen to the embryo if there was an earthquake, an act of God, a labor strike, or war? But they didn't list the very real and statistically much more probable risk of multiples. For example, with in vitro, there's a one in three chance of a multiple birth. So, um, you know, that's one area where I don't think we've followed through. Uh, another area has been with respect to, to ICSI. Um, in 1993, doctors started offering this. And it was kind of interesting. When I first went to IVF meetings, they said we're, we're, we will only do in vitro fertilization for women who have fertility problems. We're, 
Uh, it would be unethical to subject a fertile woman to the risk of hormonal stimulation and retrieval of eggs to address her husband's infertility. But in 1993, they started doing just that. Men with low sperm counts would use ICSI, where their wife, would, who didn't need to, would go through the whole in vitro process in order to have an egg injected with her husband's sperm. Um, for, for the doctors in the lab, the procedure was thrilling. They took a the needle and shot the sperm into the egg. It was like sex under the microscope. And uh, it was so satisfying, in fact, to control conception that way that a physician started using it even in cases where the husband produced enough sperm to fertilize in vitro. So within four years, more than one-third of all IVF procedures uh, involved this ICSI technique. Now, in Australia and Belgium, unlike the United States, the government keeps track of how many children conceived through reproductive technologies have genetic or other abnormalities. And uh, in 1998, they noticed that children created by ICSI were twice as likely to have uh, major chromosomal abnormalities as were children conceived naturally. A Lancet editorial criticized the use of ICSI on people before it had been adequately researched in animals. Um, there are other such procedures, egg freezing, and so forth. Um, and, you know, we, we have not, you know, followed what I'd like to see as an appropriate um, advanced scrutiny and follow up on the risk. Now, you don't read much about these downsides uh, to reproductive technologies, but when techniques involving men are proposed, they're immediately challenged. Uh, take, for example, male pregnancy. A man could be primed with the injection of female hormones, then an in vitro embryo could be inserted into his abdominal cavity. Placenta would develop and with luck attached to the fatty, blood-rich tissue that hangs in front of the intestines. Nine months later, the baby could be extracted by a procedure akin to cesarean section. Well, does that sound ludicrous? Well, Cecil Jacobson, yes, that Cecil Jacobson, the one who used his own sperm to create babies for uh, many women who thought they were getting sperm from anonymous donors, says that while he was at George Washington University, he transferred a baboon embryo into a male uh, baboon and let it gestate for five months. Uh, whether we believe that's credible or not, even in human women, pregnancy outside the uterus occurs in one in 10,000 pregnancies. Most don't succeed. In fact, most can be life-threatening because they implant in uh, a small area like the fallopian tubes, which can be life-threatening to the woman. But some women do deliver such babies with surgical intervention, including a woman who got pregnant after her womb was removed in a hysterectomy, but whose abdomen nourished a five-pound baby girl. Now, personally, I like the idea of sharing pregnancy. <laughs> Since I bore my first child, the father you know, can take his turn bearing the second. And the logic to me seems very close to that of having a wife of an infertile male undergo all this risky hormonal stimulation and other procedures uh, in ICSI in order to avoid using a third party, the sperm donor. With male pregnancy, if the woman has an infertility problem preventing gestation, uh, her husband can carry the fetus to term to avoid the use of a surrogate mother. One doctor wrote to me and said, if we are truly a society based on constitutional equality, regardless of race, religion, or sex, then that's exactly what should happen. Uh, saying that reproductive freedom should cover the freedom for men to carry pregnancies. Now, others disagree, and uh, Lee Silver in his book Remaking Eden says that today, at least, the attainment of pregnancy is not something that any sane man would attempt or that any ethical physician would suggest. 
I found that a kind of odd position, Lee, since you uh, advocate all sort of cutting-edge reproductive technologies, ICSI, genetic engineering of embryos, even cloning, that might potentially present risks to women and children. And I think that the fact that most researchers are male obviously influences the technologies that are available since it's women and children who are at risk. Men don't even have to take fertility drugs. That's why, like a decent male contraceptive, I don't think male pregnancy is going to be available soon, so don't go rush out and get the franchise on the three-piece gray maternity suit. But I think the societal uproar that occurs when we suggest something involving men uh, underscores the need for better regulation across the board, regulation I'd like to see in place before we go down a path of human cloning. Um, you're very lucky that uh, tomorrow night among the panelists you have Anne McLaren who uh, has had the experience of being in England where there is a national licensing authority where no new technique can be tried without the authority's approval. Uh, in Canada there was a royal commission investigating what um, techniques should be allowable or not, and they did uh, many interesting things, like have an 800 number where you could call in and uh, give your opinion or your experience. But in the United States, we don't appear to have the same shared cultural values of the countries that have banned cloning. In fact, our attitude seems to be more one of show me the money and the technology will be available. Um, now, when I suggest that we should be thinking carefully about regulating reproductive technologies, Many of the researchers in that field cry foul and say, why single us out? Other doctors aren't regulated. But there is a distinction here. Unlike, say, new drugs that have to go before the Food and Drug Administration, there's no similar review of reproductive technologies required. Since only a handful of states mandate insurance coverage, you don't even have the insurers looking at whether something is safe and effective. In addition, medical malpractice litigation which may provide some uh, means of assessing quality in other areas, uh, heart surgery, organ transplantation, doesn't work as well in this field uh, of creating the next generation. For example, the normal success rate of in vitro fertilization is so low, 25%, even if the couple has been subject to some negligent procedure, they may just think they're in the unlucky 75% and not not sue. And, and the reason that comes to mind is that in the mid-80s, there was a survey done of all the, at that time, 169 in vitro clinics in the United States, and half had never had a successful pregnancy. Not one. And yet couples going there never sued or anything because they just thought, well, you know, they must be having other babies, and it's just the low success rate that is um, causing us a problem here. Um, in addition, other areas of medicine come through a funding through the National Institutes of Health. Uh, it's clear that um, they're not going to fund embryo research. They won't fund creating children through uh, cloning, most likely. And so what is missing, then, is this advanced institutional review board process. In fact, Mark Sauer, an IVF doctor, has said that IRB review of reproductive technologies is so rare as to be remarkable. I read recently that um, Genetics and IVF Institute uh, in Virginia did go for an IRB review when they started um, transplanting, uh, freezing ovarian tissue of women who were about to undergo chemotherapy so they could later have children. This is one of the examples where it had, it had worked in one sheep and they then immediately offered it to, to women. And in uh, that instance, though, um, 
the doctors had already started advertising the procedure before in the newspaper before they put it before the IRB, and the IRB chairman said our feeling was that if we approved the study, at least we could monitor it, even though we knew it would go ahead whether we said yes or not. So I view my own work in this area as akin to writing science fiction. Uh, the challenge is to determine what society would look like if we choose one path as opposed to another. And I often think about Dame Mary Warnock's admonition to her committee that was making uh, recommendations about reproductive technologies, that we try to create a society that we can praise and admire, even if in individual detail we may wish it were different. Uh, this country is uh, one of the few in our technological position that hasn't really faced the uh, various uh, social and ethical issues involved across the board in reproductive technologies. And one of the issues we haven't faced is whether we should, uh, as did Great Britain and other countries, ban some reproductive technologies, such as human cloning. So I'd like to conclude by a quote that uh, Lord Jacobitz, the former chief rabbi of Britain, uh, made, said when he heard about the possibility of using fetal eggs, eggs from aborted fetuses, uh, for uh, women's infertility problems. He said that the great challenge to mankind uh, today is not only how to create, but to know when to stop creating. And he said that when we celebrate a Sabbath to remind ourselves that God initially created this world, we celebrate not his act of creation on the six days, we celebrate that he knew when to stop. So thank you very much, and I'd like to open it up for questions. I'll be happy to take some questions, and uh, we'll see two uh, people with uh, microphones. So, so if, you, uh, if you'd like to ask a question, please just raise your hand, and I'll come around to you and then speak, uh, speak into it. Don't you already have a parallel in the law with uh, genetic engineering? And wouldn't the scope of, of uh, cloning be considered under that umbrella? Um, you're suggesting that already there are existing regulations in place for genetic engineering that would apply to this? Is that the question, or, or are you saying that there are other parallels? For Take the Monsanto case. Mm -hmm. You patented a, a, a clone, uh, not a clone, but genetic engineering in tomatoes. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the questions when we say what sort of society do we want to be, an interesting... Would that have any bearing on the thinking involved in cloning? You already patent mm -hmm. genetic engineering. Mm -hmm. You're giving ownership to a chemical company mm -hmm. for all those tomatoes, and the tomatoes add infinitum into the future. Mm -hmm. Well, it, is there a parallel? I mean, there is a parallel. In, in fact, it may be the lowly patent official who decides whether we go forward with human cloning as opposed to uh, some National Bioethics Advisory Commission. Uh, for example, the Realians, the group that want to clone, the religious group that wants to clone, um, one of the reasons they can't do so is that Roslyn Institute owns that patent. So they are 
limiting access to that technology to, to not allow human cloning. The, um, but in, in terms of visualizing the society that we want, uh, Baylor College has filed for a, uh, a European patent on a technique that allows um, cows to express in their breast milk through genetic engineering, as you talked about, certain pharmaceuticals. And Baylor has asked uh, to include within its patent the ability to patent human women. Um, so I don't think this is the place I want to go, but, uh, you know, and they've said, well, we know you can't patent women now, but we want to assure our intellectual property position is protected if we, we do. Now, it's unlikely to be patentable in Europe because they believe that there are moral limitations. But in the United States, uh, as you correctly point out, uh, with patenting the Oncomouse and other uh, genetically engineered uh, entities, uh, living entities, um, the rule is anything under the sun made by man is, is patentable. And so we might get into an era where uh, we have commercial creation of human embryos with certain traits and, and ownership, you know, in them. From what you said, um, Laurie, there are no laws requiring, if we took uh, cellular material in order to, so you got the DNA, and what if someone wished to manipulate that before it was injected to create an embryo, there's no laws restricting that. Is that correct? Putting it in an egg, right. Mm -hmm. Before, Because well, once it's in, then you can't. Mm -hmm. We do have laws restricting. So is there anything in the law to, to prevent anyone from using that as a sidestep to doing some of these sort of and then you say they would own the results of that, in effect. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, in most states, yes, it would be legal to undertake human cloning today. Um, you know, and it's a, it's, it really is a voluntary moratorium at this point. And you can't even tell who's, you know, doing what in, you know, in what clinics um, now. I mean, I certainly, uh, there seems to be uh, an interest in this area um, in Sort of some IVF doctors off the record have said, well, I would clone in these circumstances, but not those. Um, in, at the second uh, mammalian uh, cloning conference last summer, in fact, one of the speakers that presented was uh, the woman who was scientific director of CloneAid, this organization to start uh, cloning humans, and she was specifically there recruiting um, scientists to this new venture. You'd been spending time talking about Bill Gates cloning himself or individuals cloning themselves as a child. But what about, I want to know what your opinion is on the ethics and the legality of the idea where somebody wants to take it with them by having a trust of all their valuables, of everything that they've gained throughout life upon death instead of going to somebody else in a will, going into a trust to allow their tissue to be cloned into another version of them and then have all of that sure. be placed in the person's trust until they reach majority. Sure. I mean, you know, with the issue, you can't take it with you, they've said, but now you can stick around to spend it if you, you know, create your own uh, clone to, uh, you know, to, to continue on. Um, the, it, it's, there are questions about, uh, under state law, um, you're going to have to have that child be, 
in utero in most states before you die if you you know if you want the if you want to create that sort of trust but i think that would be part of the appeal of people and if that's you know you can make your own judgment about whether that's a good idea or not clearly people do that all the time with creating their own children i mean the question is if it were put into place now and i had you know three children say and then i decide to clone myself and favor only that clone is it you know in the transition period is going to be disruptive are we going to have a second class citizenship among that were like the old illegitimates the conceived naturally as opposed to the favored clones i mean there there also you know might be an interest in cloning deceased relatives i mean one of the first people to ask for cloning wanted to clone her father um and you know depending on what your relationship you know was like with that particular person i mean some people say they want to clone themselves because they feel they could be do a better job raising themselves than their parents did although they might find themselves to be as much a pain as their parents found them <laughs> so it's hard to see how um how it might all work out but we did have an era where we for example saved the hair of relatives and so forth and so you know we tried it save the original if it was decided that it was advisable to regulate cloning which division of the government would you should suggest should be placed in charge of this and how would they enforce these regulations mhm um now the enforcement issue is a very very important question because clearly at the root of protection of reproductive liberty has been an idea that it's just too intrusive to force for to enforce for example a ban on contraception um in Griswold versus Connecticut the case that first found a constitutional right to use contraceptives uh the Supreme Court said would we want um would we want uh, the um police searching the serial sacred precincts of the marital bedroom uh so then the question becomes you know how do you enforce do we have dna testing of all children to make sure that they don't have dna existing of uh you know of previous dna of previously existing people um i think you know it is not as problematic as enforcing a contraceptive ban because there is a certain amount of equipment and so forth that is necessary to do this and clearly uh the enforcement hurdle has been reached in England where they you know do have provisions saying for example you can't use sperm from comatose men unless that man has provided um consent beforehand and these types of things are enforced because there's a large risk of the medical facilities losing their license if they don't comply. Um wouldn't there be a concern if there was and if it was possible to really institute a ban on cloning wouldn't the concern be then that um you'd have sort of something similar to a, you know a backroom clone um when you be concerned about what what the ramifications of that might be the doctor last night had mentioned the issue that perhaps you'd have a child um who had difficulties medically or something like that and the parents or the doctors were unwilling to bring them for help because they didn't want their you know th- their parentality or whatever to be exposed etc i mean would would that be a concern to you or do you see some way to to take care of that 
So the, the issue is if there's a black market in cloning, would you um, bring that child for, for aid? I mean, there is a difference though between allowing it, which will, um, in this age of you know New York Times ads for infertility clinics and so forth, create this competition and also create a large number. You know, are we willing to? Obviously, far fewer people will do it if it's illegal. Far, you know, we might see people like Richard Seed who may not have the best scientific equipment, capability, and, and so forth offering it, um, but I think the impact will be on far fewer people. And I think that um, laws that are violated around family creating, you know, for example, uh, paying a large amount of money to get a child on the black market through adoption, um, there, you know, doesn't seem to be the impact that then they shun other social institutions, doctors, schools, and so forth because of this, how the child, you know, came into the family. So. Um, you know, I'd be less concerned, and it certainly would, uh, if you if you secretly clone, would would uh, create fewer of the psychological problems that come from knowing that you're you're cloned. The Raelians told me that many of the couples coming to them have said that they're not going to tell the child. Uh, now, this seems to go against the fact that the Raelians also told me that um, one of the one of the Reason one of the ways they choose how the first people they would clone was that be their willingness to go on the media about it. So that seems to be in uh, juxtaposition there. But um, that hasn't worked out very well with technologies like artificial insemination uh, and surrogate motherhood and so forth. Even artificial insemination, where the couple could keep it a secret, the woman is visibly pregnant and so forth. They find that couples who say they aren't going to tell the child, it often comes out in anger. Uh, you know, the child does something wrong, the father says, no wonder you're a brat, you're not my kid anyway, the couple divorce, the wife says, I don't want you to have access to this child that, you know, who thinks you're the father. And so there are some problems with, um, you know, maintaining secrecy, which would be one way to avoid some of the psychological harms I talked about. I'd, I'd like to circle back to the first gentleman's question. Um, Many of the pharmaceutical companies are in a race to identify all genes within the human genome. Not only all the genes, but right now there's also patent issues concerning SNPs, which means mm -hmm. we look variation. Every, every mm -hmm. base point that could be changed will be patented. So really what it comes down to is who would own the clone? Would human genome science, who's patented the whole human genome, be the parent? Mm -hmm. Who will own that DNA eventually? Mm -hmm. I think that question is very much up in the air. I mean, all of us have DNA on file. We've had blood tests done at hospitals <clears throat> uh, since the late 60s. There have been newborn screening programs where uh, virtually every newborn in the United States has been, um, has had their DNA taken. Some state public health departments, like in Texas, keep those things. So, so if there were some individual, I mean, say I went back and got Michael Jordan's newborn sample and I started a conglomerate to a cell Michael Jordan clones, um, we would have the 13th Amendment, the prohibition against slavery, to be a backstop to say um, you can't own 
the 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 person that develops so i couldn't just clone myself and say now i own this and so i'm just going to take whatever organs i organs i want and uh you know too bad for the clone but you know there is an open question about who would own cloned embryos particularly if as i said before they they were genetically uh manipulated and remember that what um human genome sciences and tiger and smithline beecham and what all these places own are um in order to get the patent they can't patent a naturally occurring gene they take out what they consider the junk dna and patent the cdna and since that isn't what occurs in me i you know i can use it i can clone it i can do that but it's it's a big it's a big issue around genetically engineered seeds um and there just seems to be something troubling in the animal area to say that the 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 company that um you know sells you a genetically engineered dog owns all the generations of offspring that are created through normal matings you know patenting doesn't seem to really fit life forms in as good a way as we might think um the there's an off quoted poll right after dolly was announced that 93% of the american public was against human cloning but the vast majority of those people did not understand what human cloning was in terms of what scientists could actually do they misunderstood it in fact there still seems to be a huge misunderstanding of what cloning can and more importantly cannot do and we talk about bill gates clone of course in the in the way in which the public understands cloning a clone of bill gates will not be a bill gates clone which obviously you understand um how much of the opposition to cloning right now in your opinion is due to this misunderstanding that a clone is a replica of or would be a replica of an individual rather than just somebody who had the same genetic material as somebody else and i think that um there even with full knowledge that the the people even who understand that the clone will be different are um are still concerned about the way the clone will be treated um because after all uh why use someone as a genetic progenitor if you weren't interested in the genes i mean you could adopt you could you know, there are a whole variety of other ways you could achieve it the reason you're choosing that particular donor is because of their genetic material and so uh it's hard to believe that people would forget about that once you um you know once you brought in even if you clone a member of the infertile couple you've got to choose one or the other and so why have you chosen you know me as opposed to my husband you know and so it's hard to believe you'll forget it was mine as opposed to his once it, that clone comes on board as to the lack of understanding you know it is interesting i mean that often in the biotechnology area kind of policy responses are put down as uh, in terms of uh lack of understanding but the um some of the recent surveys and studies in Europe have found that the more people understand about biology the more skepticism they have about things like genetic engineering and 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 so forth so it doesn't seem to be uh a question of knowledge but in that sense a question of being less concerned about physical risk than about you know social and moral changes 
So uh, just a follow-up to that. If, mm -hmm. if I understand your objection to cloning, besides the safety issue, which is a serious issue that everybody except Richard Seed would agree with, mm -hmm. beyond that, the, the objection you have and the worry you have is that a child would be born with the same genetic material as a parent. But one can imagine putting together clones from cloned cells from two parents into a child that was emerged from cloning but would not be genetically identical to to a single parent. Would you still object to that use of the technology, assuming that it could be used safely and there was no harm? I'm assuming if you, you know, if you did a genetic mix, that would be of less concern to me than having someone live a previously lived genotype where it's, you know, insurance companies, everybody else is going to take that into consideration and you're going to be, you know, limited in, in some way. Well, I think we uh, have worked uh, our speaker very hard tonight, and uh, it's been an extremely stimulating evening. And I'd like you, first of all, to join me in, in thanking Lori for a really stimulating evening. Thank you. <laughs> and, and secondly, I'd like to remind you that the uh, fireworks uh, continue tomorrow night. Uh, and uh, tomorrow night, Lee will actually be up on the stage. Uh, and uh, that will be at 8 p.m. in Makash 50, so please join us again. And thanks, all of you, for your participation tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you.